Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell. And welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year's Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone. If you joined us last week, we began a two-part conversation on Black financial wealth management. We were joined by Latoya Williams, Wealth Management Advisor with Old National Bank. We had an enlightening conversation centering on ways Blacks can be proactive concerning wealth generation and management. We determined that in spite of fear or ignorance, more needs to be done to motivate Black Americans to increase their financial literacy and realize the unique financial power to the current and next generation of Black Americans hold. If you missed last week's show, we invite you to go back and listen in. You can access the podcast at wfhb.org backslash category backslash public affairs backslash bring it on. And we know that's uh, quite a lengthy uh, URL, but once you get to the WFHB site, just go to the public affairs tab and you can navigate easier from there. But we did want to put in the actual path to get you there. Okay, LaToya joins us again to address additional topics and concerns related to Black wealth. With over a decade of experience in the financial industry, LaToya Williams, again, who's a wealth management advisor with Old National Bank, serves her clients by helping them reach and exceed their financial goals. She is dedicated to understanding the unique needs of her clients and developing personalized strategies that focus on their, on their big picture goals and values rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. In her community, LaToya is committed to volunteering her time to promote financial literacy. And with that, Mrs. Williams, welcome back to Bring It On. And bring thank it on. You, thank, thank you. you. Welcome back. Thank you. We're so excited to be back with you all. Well, I, I really do feel we, we scratched the surface. And in some respects, this could be a three or four parter, Liz. Do you agree with me? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, just to sort of bring everyone up to speed, we talked about the need to get a plan. We, we talked about... Uh, it's not too late to start, but to be realistic with your planning and uh, don't beat yourself up if you felt that you didn't take advantage of some things, but we're going to journey on uh, to talk a little bit more. And Liz, I'll let you lead off today with uh, some of your questions. Okay. Um, the last question that uh, I had asked last time, I start off with that one. And that is, Latoya, how much of your assets will a nursing home take? Now that is a, a really important question for most senior citizens. And, and thank you for that question, Liz. Um, when we think about the journey or that transition, if it is time um, to go to a nursing home, what we really have to understand is, you know, that organization is doing like what most uh, healthcare organizations are doing today. They're charging a fee for services. And we know that in our country, healthcare is one of the most staggering costs that individuals experience, especially if they're ill. If you think about pharmaceutical drugs, the cost without, without insurance is skyrocketing. 
For nursing home care, what we have to understand is the statistics state that about $70,000 a year to, to be in a in-home in, in nursing facility, $70,000 a year is about the cost. For um, assisted living, we're talking about $40,000 a year for assisted living. That's where you're still functional taking care of yourself, but you know, you've got somebody coming in. For in-home care, we're talking about $30,000 a year. So if you have assets that can be used to cover that cost, those assets are going to be used. Um, it's just unfortunate that that's what, what it is, but really the only thing that Medicare allows as kind of outside of that bracket is about $2,000. It's about $2,000 of your assets that are going to be outside of that bracket. So if you've got assets and we've got this big expense to take care of, again, $70,000 for, for in, in, in nursing home care, your assets are going to be utilized to cover those costs. What is, I heard something about uh, five years. Uh, it used to be three. Mm -hmm. I think it's five years you sign your assets over to a trusted person. Yes. So... And then yes. you're okay? That is a strategy um, that can be utilized. And it's essentially looking to move your assets out of your name five years prior to the need for any type of assisted living. So you would have to know when you would need to go into like a nursing home care um, to shelter your assets and just utilize Medicare as the means to pay for your care. Um, so essentially the way this would work is let's say you're someone that you've got $500,000 in assets that you've saved in a retirement plan or other, you know, between your home and other assets. You would need to do that move those assets into a trust where someone else is, is administering those assets and giving you an income five years prior. But there have been news lately that states that Medicare is really catching on and they're looking to close from a legal standpoint those loopholes to prevent individuals from having the ability to shelter those assets. Um, so there are other things that you know individuals want to want to take into consideration. I mean, if you are willing to relinquish your assets and give someone else control five years prior, you can do that. But really think long and hard about about doing that because you then are at the mercy of whoever you've elected as the executor or the administrator of your estate. Tell me about um, long term care. That insurance is it a good thing? That when I looked into it years ago. I couldn't afford it. Yeah, and, and, and Liz, you're right. For most people, it is extremely expensive. And, and we really just learned why, right? I mean, the cost of healthcare is so expensive and you are essentially funding your ability to have a quality uh, healthcare environment during your senior years. So for the audience that may not be aware of what long-term care is, um, essentially it is insurance that you purchase that acts as a vehicle to cover a wide range of services. We mentioned um, nursing home care, assisted living, adult daycare, and um, in-home visits. Um, it covers those costs if you are incapacitated, don't have the ability to care for yourself, you have access to use long-term care for these types of services. Um, but to Liz's point, it is extremely expensive because what it's covering is extremely expensive. Um, but there are, in the state of Indiana, Indiana is only one of four states that offers a long-term care insurance product that offers what's called Medicare protection. 
Now, what I'll say is this is certainly not my area of expertise, so I would recommend that you consult with an individual that um, specializes in long-term care insurance because there is specific additional training that these individuals receive and they could really help you understand the nuts and bolts of this product. But essentially what it does, um, Liz's first question around what assets will be protected, long-term care insurance offered through the state, um, through the specific state program, protects your assets up to a specific or specified dollar amount. Um, so for example, we're gonna use that same scenario. Let's say you are someone that has about $500,000 in assets, including your 401k and your home. You purchased a long-term care policy and essentially the long-term care policy will have a value of let's say $150,000. Let's say that's the value of your long-term care policy. You have a couple of ways you can do that. You can fund that policy with $150,000 or you're gonna have annual or monthly payments that you will pay into that policy to give you a long-term care value of $150,000. So if you use this product that is protected, um, that gives Medicare protection through the state of Indiana, when you have used all of that $150,000, we are not going to go after that first $152,000 of your assets. And it's $152,000 because remember, Medicare allows a protection for $2,000. We just stated that a bit earlier. So $152,000 of your assets will be protected. So you do shelter a bit of it, purchasing long-term care insurance. But again, to Liz's point, it's pricey. Every year, the state of Indiana in, uh, institutes a number that you, a dollar amount that you have to purchase in terms of protecting your assets. And that number changes every year. So for this year, in order for your assets or the, the maximum amount of assets that you can protect is about $440,000. So you have to buy up to that amount for your assets not to be protected. Again, I would recommend having this conversation with a long-term care insurance expert because I do think that there is a way that we can utilize this product and shelter some of our assets, but it's a lot to understand. Um, it's a lot to understand how the product works, but it does protect you uh, in, in some regards if you do have to utilize those services because you gotta think about it. If you have to use Medicare, those services are only going to be to the standard that Medicare will provide those services to, meaning your level of care is probably going to decrease. Yeah. Another, another thing to keep in mind is you got to start shopping around for nursing homes and every nursing home is not the same. Uh, there's standards that govern the nursing homes, but we all know that there are deficiencies that even lead up to abuses in yeah. nursing home. And that's, and that's the fear of a lot of families. Speaking of families, uh, mm -hmm. that just reinforces what used to be the old standard way of doing things that when we got older, we stayed with family mm -hmm. and we live with family and we transitioned often with family surrounding us, but that's not necessarily possible in this day and age with the way households are structured or developed there. Um, but wow, that's, uh, that's certainly something to think about. How does one, as they're making, as they're saving, take into account the long-term care and then thinking forward, plan for even that ultimate type of care in a nursing home facility, or hopefully in an in-home situation where if you're still mobile, functional, I would, I would definitely desire to do that. But uh, mm -hmm. what does one do financially wise, planning wise to prepare for that? Um, again, um, planning is key. And when we, when you think about it, um, Clarence, to your point is the old way was that family was there. 
and family was was helping to take care of the, our transitioning senior citizens. You know, I'm instructing people that I that I work with still have that conversation with your family member because at some point they're going to have to be making decisions on your behalf. Uh, but essentially, we've got to look at the finances, right? I mean, we just talked about, and to Liz's point, she's checked it out. For some people, this is a seven thousand dollar annual expense. And this is start, that's starting early, buying long-term care insurance. You might spend seven to $10,000 annually if you can't pre-fund a long-term care policy. And for most people, um, that's a heavy lift to pre-fund $150,000 or up insurance policy. So really, I mean, I, I think from a, from a understanding the platform of this show, Black Wealth talking about us, we've got to get back to who we were designed to be. And we were tribal, you know, having that family unit, that family connection is really, because that, that's a big lift to, to expect that most people are gonna have that income to provide that type of insurance and that care. And to your point, we know the quality of some of these facilities and they probably are doing the very best they can, but the workers are overworked as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough situation that we're in when we think of caring for our elder elderly. I, I see a lot of people who've had, uh, you know, pretty serious surgeries that need to rehabilitate or, or just uh, to, to convalesce they often go to nursing homes. Is it still the type of price structure there or does your insurance cover up to so much? I mean, are you still looking at just mountains of debt? Well, again, with Medicare, Medicare is going to pay for a specific allotted part of a a specific allotted period of time. And after that, you could just be offloaded to another facility and to your point, collecting debt, collecting debt that you'll never you'll never be able to pay. And if you have any type of policies, your heirs aren't going to inherit anything because it will go to cover uh, the cost of those debts. Mm-hmm. What I found interesting, uh, Latoya, is I have a friend taking care of a, a, a sick partner. And so she's done a lot of work looking into nursing homes here in Bloomington. And the cost of them is staggering. Then when you get into one, Every little thing they do for you is an additional cost. So he needed his depends changed, $1,000 a month. And somebody may not be changing those depends Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. your medication that you need to take at a certain time every day. Mm -hmm. He wasn't given that medication at the specific time every day. And so she had to go every day to do what he was paying them to do. So it, it's, I learned a lot from her. Just, just trying to look at a nursing home is scary business. It's frightening. And it's a lot of work. It, it is a lot of work. It's a heavy lift. We've got a, a, an uncle that's currently in nursing home care right now. And um, the, the resources weren't there to pay for a single room. So he shares a room with someone else. You know, so that's your dignity. Your dignity is also now, um, you know, this is a stranger. They didn't know each other before they were, they were roommates. Um, so they're, they're, so to me, again, I think that if you are planning and you're younger, it's better to plan for this type of expense younger because the insurance is going to factor in your current health. And so for somebody, I, I know that we think that we're invincible, but for somebody that is in their 20s and their 30s, even 40s, 
50s is good too, but the older you get, because you're getting older and you're getting closer to the need for that care, the more expensive the product gets. Um, and so planning is key. Having a conversation, again, this is, this is definitely not my area of expertise. There are specialists that spend their time having this conversation day in and day out. But to me and for me and our family, we are looking to really institute those tribal tended, those tribal um, characteristics that make us unique, um, because I don't think that it just benefits us from a care standpoint. I think there's there's something spiritual that we gain when we are spending time nurturing those loved ones that nurtured us. So we as a people, as a Black people, have to get back to understanding what were, how were we originally, what, what were we originally doing to care for our, our seniors? And I don't think that that just has an impact on their, their, uh, their finances. I think it has an impact on their health as well, because many seniors are, are dying just from being lonely, just from being lonely and isolated. So there are many ways that we could add to the value of the lives of our loved ones just by being there. Okay, I want to ask one more question and I'm going to pass it on to dear Clarence. Could you tell our listening audience decade by decade mm -hmm. what they should be doing as far as management, wealth management, like in their 20s, in the 30s, and in your 40s, decade by decade? what they should be doing. That's a great, that's a definitely a great question. For So for somebody in their 20s, I mean, think about it. They are probably just living paycheck to paycheck, just learning how to manage their dollars and thinking about hanging out with friends. That's about all that someone in their early 20s is thinking about. What I would recommend that they start thinking about, whether they're working full-time or part-time, is really understanding all of the benefits that are available to them through their employer. They want to understand what their insurance benefits look like, and they want to understand what their any retirement benefits that they have. Um, and they want to make sure that they consider making contributions in. When I was working primarily with retirement plans, most 20-year-olds would say, I've got time. I don't have to think about that now. And I would explain to them the time value of money and how you your youth is truly a blessing when it comes to saving. And I would show them projections. If we do $50, if we do $60, this is what this will mean. And so they need to have those projections and conversations and understand that the time value of money is the most biggest benefit that's on their side. And when you think about your, your retirement plans, you want to know your vesting schedule. Um, according to statistics, most millennials are going to have eight jobs between the time they're 18 and 32 years old. So they're going to be doing a lot of transitioning. And if they don't understand their vesting schedule at their employer, they tend to leave a lot of money on the table. And essentially what a vesting schedule is with a retirement plan, it's when the employer gives you free money or they match your 401k contribution, the vesting schedule tells you when you own that money. Some companies do a, a safe harbor, which is an immediate vest. So when they make that contribution, that money is yours. Other companies do a cliff vesting, um, meaning you may have to be there for three full years before you get that money. And other companies do what's called a graded vesting, meaning that um, it, it increases over time. So say in five years, um, you'll own all of it. But if you're only at your two or three, you own 10% or 20%. And so you have to be there for a long duration of time to keep all that money. Again, millennials are changing jobs quickly. Let's say that they've saved, you know, the company has matched them $10,000 in their retirement plan and they decide to go get another job in two years and nine months and they had a three-year cliff vesting. They left $10,000 at that company and it's all because they weren't aware of what the benefits were and how the benefit works. So really, this is what you can focus on because it's, 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 a, it's efficient for your income. It's just knowledge, gaining knowledge and understanding what the benefits that you have are to you. 
as we're transitioning into our 30s, we're probably a little bit more stable, right? We know kind of what we're doing from a career standpoint. We're probably starting to have a family and we're thinking more about our finances, probably considering paying down debt and being a little bit more aware. Um, one thing that we want to think about when we get to this age is saving between 10 and 15% of our income. You know, we, we want to make it reasonable for this age group because we've got kids, we're running around with games and expenses. So we can't overload them with thinking about tomorrow because we also have to take care of today. But in thinking about taking care of today, because you have children, you also want to start thinking about your uh, the legacy that you would leave if something were to happen to you today. From a planning perspective, especially if you have children, you want to ensure that your children are going to have access or your spouse, should you pass away and you were from a dual income family, you want to think about having about 10 times your income in insurance to cover your income if you were no longer here. So what I mean by that, you know, when I was in, was I, when I was in my 30s, we were in our early 30s, 30s especially, we had two, two children. And if my husband would have passed away, his income would have been a significant loss to our family, not just our immediate bills, but my children's ability, where they would have the ability to go to college and what their financial future would look like. So having 10 times your, your income in insurance helps you to under, helps prepare your family for carrying on should you transition. Term insurance is relatively cheap for young individuals. So we would certainly have a conversation around that. And that's what thir those 30s want to start thinking about. When we get into our 40s, we've probably got a little bit more disposable income, you know, um, especially if you're established in your career and you want to think about how you can max out your retirement plan. And that means putting for someone that is um, under 50, that's uh, $20,500 annually. Now, you might not start out at that at 40, but you want to make that your goal every year to get closer to putting that full amount in your retirement plan. You also want to start thinking about where are additional ways that you can invest starting to think about passive income. And right now for almost everybody, you can make money if you just put a website up right now and are selling anything, you know? So in those forties, we wanna start thinking about ways, what are other ways that we can accelerate our income because we probably have a little bit more of it to spend. So now we're transitioning into our fifties. These are our golden years, right? Where kids are gone later years, hopefully grandkids will be coming. Now we really want to get serious with that planning. You know, what do we want these, these next years of our life to be? And we want to pedal to the metal with really understanding all that we have and all that we plan to do so that our plan is solidified transitioning in to that, that last five years of work from that 60 to 65 timeframe. And from that timeframe, what we're wanting to get a handle on from 60 to 65 is when are we, when are, when is the day over? <laughs> when is the last day? You know, when are we going to retire and what are my healthcare expectations? What are my healthcare expectations? You know, understanding how Medicare works, because believe it or not, I have some people say, well, social security starts at 62. I'm retiring at 62. And they're not aware that that Medicare benefit is not going to be there. And so it's, un it's unfortunate that I have to tell them we're going to have to work a few more years or find something part-time to subsidize because healthcare for someone over 60 is going to be expensive if you don't have that employer helping you. And then beyond that, once we get to that retirement age, we want to ensure that, again, while, while we're doing all of this through all of these stages, that we've established trusted advisors. Because during that, that 65 beyond years, we need our money to last the, the duration of time that we're on this earth. 
And we've, you know, if you've been watching the news at all, I kind of buried my head almost under the desk this week watching the volatility that we experienced in the market because for that dot, that group of people, they're very uncomfortable. Seeing the volatility that we've seen in the stock market this week is, is very hard for people that are in retirement. But if you had been working with a financial advisor prior to this time, that person should have already prepared your portfolio to be adjusted for this level of risk. So those are the things that I think I would recommend someone having a, an understanding on in, in those various stages of life. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to... Uh take a pause because we have digested quite a bit, but for those who just joined us on Bring It On, we're having a wonderful conversation with Old National Bank Wealth Management Advisor LaToya Williams. Uh, she's again joining us this week. This is part two of a conversation, and she has given us great advice on financial literacy, wealth, growth, and management, and the basics of short and long-term financial planning. I, I want to turn a corner here on some fact or fiction myth type of uh, responses. Um, myth number one, credit cards are bad. Your, your, your response to that general myth that all credit cards are bad. You don't need a credit card. Credit cards in the wrong hands of the wrong people are bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is really about, this is really a matter of control. Um, what makes something good or bad is how it's utilized. Um, if someone doesn't understand that if you accumulate a large balance on a credit card with a high compounding interest rate, um, that's a credit card in the hands of someone that that's going to have bad results, you know, because they'll, they probably have impulses and they just want to get something because they have an available balance um, and they're not paying it off. So that thing that was $200 is now $500. That's, that's a credit card in the hands of someone that it can turn really bad. But if you understand and you're paying your balances off and you've got some points on that credit card that you can travel with or use for other things, um, I, I think it could be a, a tool that someone that is wise and educated about the vehicle can benefit from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, then I think there's another myth out there about uh, clearance sales are always the best bargain. Clearance sales? Clearance and not clearance sales, but clearance sales are always the best bargain. <laughs> My sales may not be very good at all, but clearance sales are the best yeah. bargain. Yeah, sometimes they're not. Sometimes that's just all hype, market hype. Um, and sometimes those prices are higher than the original prices, but the idea that there's a sale is what brought you in. Well, I, I think of your holidays, 4th of July, Memorial Day, you name it, President's Day, and, and, and all the commercials are saying, Come in and get the furniture, the mattresses, all this, that, and the other. We'll, we'll put flooring on your floor, this, that, and the other. But then it, it dawns on me, what if they raise the price during that time and the deal you think you're getting is, is maybe slightly below what it would normally cost to begin with? I mean, just little kind of shady things that they do, but we are impulsive people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sad because, again, I go back to the example last week, going to a convenience store when I get gasoline. And when you go in to pay... People are getting lottery cards that in my mind and in my heart, I'm thinking that's the last thing you maybe need because they're buying quantity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then they scratch and they, and they feverishly scratch and there's nothing. And, and they've just, to me, thrown away mm -hmm. hard earned. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how do you tell someone who's young and again, that feeling of being invincible to be careful with their impulses? Because their impulses, as we know, can get them in trouble. How, how, how do you, if I may ask, educate your children? 
Sure, sure. Oh, that's a that's a great question. So, you know, we started talking to our kids about money um, the second they started asking about it. The second they asked for it, we started talking to them about money. Um, and Mike does a contract with the kids every year. And so the way they earn money is through good grades, good sports performance. If they do something extraordinarily special or nice, we'll award them as well. And annually, um, they have a contract negotiation session where they can, he can, he sets the expectations for the year. He tells them what they're, you know, that where we need to be in terms of their performance with grades, their sports, and he sets those expectations. They then can also negotiate their rate for their grades. So it gives them, you know, some ownership and some stake in what they're going to earn, but they're also learning a business technique as well while having fun with their father. We play games like Monopoly that deal with, you know, assets and transferring money. Um, our daughter is a pro. She will be the best CEO or run the best company one day because she's so frugal and she acquires lots of assets at the same time. Now with our son who is 17 and wants, as you can imagine, hundreds of expensive tennis shoes, it's, it's really him that we really focus on teaching impulse control too. The tennis shoes are $300 and $400 and I can't understand how tennis shoes can cost this much. And what we tell him is that you work hard today, you delay, your, you delay what you want to get today, you earn the money, and when you're ready to make that purchase, then you can have it. But I bet that once you've worked hard for it, you're not going to wanna to take $400 that took you six months to earn and go buy a, a pair of tennis shoes because they have sweat equity involved in it. And so our culture um, has made it very easy to get pleasure from things. And so what we're working to teach our children, and it took us time to learn, um, is the wealth is me. It's not the thing that I have that that is the wealth. I'm the wealth. I'm the value. And if it's a if it's a, a a Target purse, you know, I like nice purses, but if it's a Target purse or a Louis Vuitton, it's, it's the same if it's on me because I'm the wealth. So it's retraining them to understand that the value is not in the external product. It's okay to have nice things, but don't do it if it's going to put you in jeopardy. And when you think about, again, putting that work into all it took to get $400, you're probably, they don't, they don't spend it on shoes. <laughs> So that's one thing that we do with our kids is we slow them down and really get them to, to understand that they are the value. It's not the, it's not the things. I like hearing that Latoya, because I've seen uh, so many young women with several babies and what we call the long finger rails, that's expensive. And the Elsie, the cow eyelashes, that's expensive. Uh, and I get it, Blacks, we've always spent money on our hair, on hair care. Uh, but I, I, I asked myself, how do you at that age in your 20s and 30s, that adds up when I would rather purchase some stock mm -hmm. in that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that too, uh, that you are the important one. It's you and yeah. not what you carry. Yeah, I mean, and again, I, I, take, I take a lot of these principles back to the land that we were brought from, you know, and if you think of the land, you know, the land has gold in it, the land had diamonds in it, you know, so there, there's something inherently rich about who we are. There's something inherently rich about who we are. And when you can just slow down and understand that this is only going to temporarily satisfy you, this thing that you acquire is going to give you temporary satisfaction because it's not going to last. 
<laughs> no matter what you're purchasing, it, it's a temporary fix. If you reposition to understand your internal value, you won't be so, so grabby and so desperate for things that are external to who you are and what you bring. Um, it just, it's just a different way to approach acquiring stuff and things. Oh, I love it. I love it. For people who um, still may have a hard time grasping the uh, scenarios and the examples that are being shared, if this were November and we were in the holiday roller coaster season, we would have come out of Halloween and immediately, even before Halloween's over, Christmas ads are running. And this is before Thanksgiving. So, I mean, we're, we're looking at Black Friday. We're looking at people saying, I want to want, I need a need, I want to want, I need a mm -hmm. need. And the frustration level mounts and you're looking at what you have probably in savings and you want to purchase joy and acceptance during the season. You totally missed the reason for the season. I mean, that, that's, that's totally gone. But we have children who will grab you and say, I want to want, I need to need. You know that because we did it. We were, I mean, don't act like you don't know. We did it. I went through a Montgomery Ward catalog, a Sears catalog and a JC. They don't even have those anymore. And I would just say on page 68, I want, you know, as if, right, you know, but say you get these things and on Christmas, there's a glow of Christmas morning, packages are being torn to threads and whoops and screams and squeals of delight. And then within a week, no, no, three days time, that thing is thrown in the corner or broken. And the glow of Christmas has totally gone away in their minds. And to me, that would be the perfect example of we have this sort of impulsive desire for, for satisfaction. And if, if it's delayed, it's better. If you earn and, and, and save for it, then you have that has value. You're not going to, my gosh, I spent six months or more saving for this. So uh, to illustrate what you articulate, articulated and very well, just for those who may say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, I understand, but no, 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 no. You know exactly now what we mean. And this is serious because those principles will follow them all their life. And then you get caught up in the credit traps, you get a credit card to pay off another credit card to pay off another credit card, or you do things um, like when you rent your first apartment and you just saw some, well, I'm going to move. And you just move without taking care of what you need to take care of. That follows you on your credit report. So, so these are survival skills. Uh, if I can, I want to talk about, uh, we'll eventually get to this uh, one question I'm burning to ask, but are there any Black-owned banks left in America? And if so, where are they? And how are they doing financially? So there are about um, 19 or 20 uh, Black-owned banks. I say 19 or 20 because I know there was some news last, I want to say early in May, uh, excuse me, late in April, early in May, I can't remember when, of a new Black bank that recently opened um, in Minnesota. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there are Black banks. Um, now, unfortunately, I, I do not have the, the financial history on all of them, but what I can say um, is that it is very difficult to run a bank. It is very, it is extremely difficult to run a bank because bank depends on, on money and money comes from the community. And the community has to deposit enough money in the bank and leave enough in the money in the bank for the bank to make money. So it's, it, it's very important that the bank is in a community where money is flowing into the bank, not being pulled out of the bank. Now, there was an article um, that was done, I wanna say November of 2020, um, and it was about a bank that um, 
oh gosh, now the name um, minister in Chicago, gosh, his name is going to escape me. It'll come back. Uh, an African-American minister that funded, helped to fund a bank on the, in Chicago. And with banks and black banks in particular, we are specific in nature is that we are looking to serve the black and typically where we're, where we're placed are in areas that are economically underserved, meaning that the people that are going to want loans from us might not have the, the means and the mechanism to maintain those loans due to circumstances. An example is what we just experienced. You know, we've got a, we, we can have a Black-owned bank in a Black neighborhood that was able to give loans to, um, to their, their clients in 2018 and 19. Things are going well. What happens in 2020? You know, we have COVID, we have COVID. And so those people that are now black bank uh, clients with black loan, with loans, what, where are they working? Right. They're working in an, in an arena, arena that is heavily going to be affected by any type of pandemic or major situation. So what does that affect? Their ability to pay. There aren't major corporations that are coming to fund these banks, putting these, this money in, in, on deposit. So that leaves a black bank in a black neighborhood with black deposits at jeopardy. It leaves them at jeopardy because there isn't enough inflow into the bank to, to, for them to make money to sustain the weight that they have to carry. So we have to think about as, as African-Americans, not only how we get behind Black banks and how we support them, but we also have to understand how corporations support and fund Black banks. So after subsequent to George Floyd, um, there were several corporations, and I won't name them, um, you can go do your research, that said the, one of the crux, the crux of the problem, one of the problems in the African-American community is economics. And we are going to put on $100 million in this blank, a bank, black bank, this amount in this black bank, because it allows them to sustain the community. So we want, we want to think about two things. Look up the black banks. You might not have one in your local area, but figure out a way you can have assets on deposit in that black bank. And then look at the corporations that are holding dollars in those banks and support them because they're supporting us. And so we've got to be educated. Um, a part of this is, is, is a part of this conversation is doing just that. And we have to understand that it's gonna take us to help uplift the corporations that will help uplift the banks so that we don't just have 20, but we have 120 or 520, but it's gonna take our internal support. Thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, very good. I, I still can't wrap my head around the fact that uh, Clarence looked through books and circled what he wanted. I never got to do that. <laughs> he he no. got to check off stuff in, for Christmas and circle stuff. Hey, he was hey, from man. a wealthy family. I didn't no, 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 like no, no, Have you ever heard of uh, Make-A-Wish? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even have the book to circle. Hey, so. I mean, but see, part of the excitement, the build-up, now, now think about it. Now, this was back when my heart went out to mail carriers because they carried all these catalogs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Remember service merchandise? That was another one. Oh yeah. So so you oh, bring yeah. these things at the home and they're just they're like they're like coffee table books and you're going through and then it's November and you're like ah, and your parents are like mm -hmm, you were uh -huh, nice. mm -hmm. no 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 no. So you go through and and they already know what two or three things you're going to get, you know. But uh I mean it's just it's the excitement. My mind was totally on the commercialism of Christmas. It was. Yeah. I mean come yeah. on. Yeah, but um, that was a day. But nowadays, it's even the things that kids want, like cell phones that cost. You got to get the plan to get it. Otherwise, if you get it on its own, it's like four hundred or six hundred, maybe more. 
but you have to have the latest, greatest, and gym mm-hmm. shoes and mm-hmm. and outfits and all that. So mm-hmm. teaching them when they're young, I, I if if you don't take anything away from the night show, start young with your children. And as a lead-in, what are the best strategies for funding your child's college education? Again, oh, yes. starting young. The 529, yes. is it? Or yes, yes, that's a great, that's a great question. So in Indiana, Indiana's plan is the College Choice 529. Um, and College Choice is a specific um, uh, organization that offers the 529. You can buy 529s from, from a variety of organizations, um, but they are they're not the Indiana plan. So if you're looking specifically for Indiana, it is Indiana College Choice. Uh, the benefit of a 529 is that it is going to allow you to make contributions in uh, to this account for the benefit of your child. Um, you're going to get tax deferred growth. So you can place those dollars in, you can elect where you want to invest those and they can grow. If those dollars are used for qualified educational expenses, they will come out with no tax liability. Um, If you are in Indiana and do elect to use the Indiana 529, you do have the ability to get up to a 20% state tax credit uh, or up to $1,000, which is the max. So you can't get more than $1,000. uh, from that from that contribution, but you do have the ability to do that. Uh, it's just a really great vehicle if your child, if you know they're going to go to college, to utilize to reduce your taxable income and potentially your your state income taxes as well. Um, there are statistics that show that if you looked at investing, let's say you were someone that wanted to start the five twenty nine for your child and they're just born, you start it with with twenty five hundred dollars and you use two different accounts. I'll give you two different examples. If you didn't use the 529 and you just saved that money, let's say you could invest $200, $200 a month, every month until that child is 18. The 529, because of the tax advantage, is going to have between, let's just say it grew at a moderate rate of 5%. So we're not even going to be aggressive with how much your investments will grow. Your your 529 plan will give you an advantage of about $7,000 difference because of the tax saving nature in the plan. So same money, but the tax benefit of that 529 plan by the time we reach maturity and start using those dollars will have almost, for some in-state schools, uh, a semester's worth of tuition. Um, added to that account for you. Um, so it is it is a benefit if you know your child is going to go to college to utilize that. Definitely. I just want to add to that what I know because I had done that for my son who's now 29. Mm-hmm. I had a 529 Indiana State uh, college fund for him. I also did that, opened one up for my grandson the day he was born. And I put, uh, I still do, even though I'm retired right out of my annuity, I put a little bit in there each month. If you take that money out early, you will be penalized. And also it's not only just for college, but it's for a trade school, anything outside once they graduate from high school. So it's higher education, either a trade school, because not everybody wants to go to college. And then also, uh, of course, college money. And I think uh, the 529 is the way to go. You can't beat it. And and what I told my son and my grandson, who who's eight years old and wants a cell phone, the best gift I can give him is the gift of an education. So I show him, even though he's eight, his 529 plan, and I explain it to him. And I said, here's your cell phone right here. You get it yourself when you graduate from college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, you talk about me and my catalogs. 
don't even let the, the, the young man have the make a wish experience. You know? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, no but, cell but phones that, from but, grandma. But, 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 but that, but that, that, that's good wisdom. Um, for those who just turned in, tuned in, we are. This is our last ID for this particular uh, uh, broadcast, but. We are having a wonderful, enlightening, educational conversation with Latoya Williams, who is an old National Bank wealth management advisor. And I will say that old National Bank is very fortunate to have Latoya working with them. She did not tell us to say that, by the way. Uh, she is joining us to advise us. Uh, this is our part two conversation on financial literacy, wealth, growth, and management. The two go hand in hand and the basics of short and long term financial planning. We, we are getting close to about oh, 20 minutes or so left. There, there are a couple areas that I want to talk about. You know, we, we've had some sort of sobering conversations this hour, but boy, here's one. How do you counsel a divorcee, mm -hmm. a recent divorcee, um, you know, the shock of what's just happened and they come to you and now you're not only counselor, but you're you're almost psychologist and your training is in that area but i mean how do you pick them up and get them thinking positive forward and, and infuse them with hope financially yeah there's a lot of work to do um, when when someone is is newly divorced you know the first thing is is we've got to think about all the accounts that you have you know we've got to get those any type any types of joint accounts that you have we've got to get those accounts closed you know, and, and, and there's really, we've really got to start sprinting and then we can slow down and do the counseling at the end because there's so much work to do at the beginning that we've got to handle the, the emotional side a little bit later and hit all the big ticket items up front uh, as fast as possible. We want to open up new accounts um, that making sure that there's no passwords associated with those accounts that the ex-spouse could potentially figure out or find out. So get some really good passwords on your accounts. Um, we want to make sure that we change beneficiaries. Changing beneficiaries is one of the most important things we want to do on any document that we have. We want to check every, again, we've got a list of all our accounts. We're changing beneficiaries. We also want to update our insurance coverage. You want to think about your automobile insurance, your homeowner's insurance, umbrella policies. You know, if you've covered for jewelry, um, because again, your spouse probably isn't going to be driving your car, so you can reduce your cost having that person off of your policy. If you've got an umbrella policy that was covering jewelry or other items, um, your, if they were your spouses and are still listed on that policy, you're paying more premium for something that is no longer in your possession. So really going through all of your insurance policies and making sure that you are only covering your assets. We also want to think about creating an emergency expense. This um, experience of divorce has probably rocked their world enough. And from an income standpoint, you are more vulnerable because you are now one income as opposed to two. So we need to be thinking about what, you know, what ways we can get that three to six month worth of emergency fund in place. And then we want to think about ways that we can protect our income. So now that we are only one income, we want to think about disability insurance. Now is really a good time. If you get sick and it's just you covering those bills, you need a, st a stopgap to ensure that if you're in, incapacitated income is still coming in outside of what's offered from a short-term disability policy from work. You want to buy up the gap. So typically, if you're working somewhere, you're going to get disability insurance, but it's only going to pay cover the max I've seen is about 70% of your income. I can't live on 70%. I need 100% of my income to take me 100% of the way until I'm healthy. So we need to buy the gap. We need to buy up that gap. So having that conversation with an, an insurance person is what I'd recommend doing. Checking your credit. 
you know, there's a reason you got divorced. I hope this person didn't do anything, but if they've got your social security number, you, you just don't know, check your credit, make sure there's nothing that they have put in your name now that they are no longer in the picture. We really want to think about estate planning. You know, you're divorced. You're seeing how messy this has all been to get your assets um, uh, uncommingled, un separated. You know, what about your children? If you have children, don't you want that process to be as easy and as simple as possible for them? So really start thinking about estate planning. And one of the biggest that I will highlight the most is retitling all of your assets in your name. Again, retitling all of your assets in your name. Give us an I, example. I, that's, that's what I was going to do. Okay. I was going to give you an example of that because I have got a good one. <laughs> I had a friend that wasn't even married. She was dating someone in the, in the late 80s, and she dated him for, for 20 years. They got they they were no longer dating, but she he wanted her to move in. And she said, the only way I'll move in is if you put my name on the title of your home. He obliged. He put her name on the title of his home. He recently passed away. Guess what he didn't do? He didn't retitle his home. So the girlfriend that he had in the early 1980s inherited his home. And there was nothing that the family could do about it. And they tried, they tried. So she got a windfall of a home. Retitling all of your assets in your name is so important. Okay, okay, on that note, Say if, if there are things that have been going on and if uh, you look on the horizon of your marriage and you don't see beyond a few more months because it's getting intolerable, there may be some domestic issues, there may be a whole host of things going on that um, you just see the end is in sight. So prior to all that, who, what, who should they be visiting with for their exit strategy? Yeah, definitely an attorney. Definitely an attorney because there are, especially if you made those purchases together, you know, there are legal ramifications that can come into play. Um, but we know that sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes one party purchased that home and someone else moved in. Um, and someone else was the, the total breadwinner, you know, so I would have that conversation with an attorney. Um, I, I can't give the, the, the legal advice, but an attorney would be able to walk that person down those specifics of, from a legal standpoint, how to protect themselves if they know that the end is, is near. And one last, one last question before I yield to Liz. What's your thought on a prenuptial? Yes. <laughs> that is a great question. So thinking about someone that's preparing um, to get married and what their financial situation is gonna look like. You know, and this, you know, I, this is one of the hardest questions to answer. You know, do I get a prenuptial? Do I have separate accounts? What do we, how do we handle our finances? And there's really no right or wrong answer. You know, this is really a personal thing that you have to discuss with your significant other. You know, when Michael and I got married, you know, I shared last week that it'll be 19 years on May 31st. And um, we were young and we talked about money. But we didn't have any. <laughs> we're still we're still working on we're still working on building what we have. But we didn't know what we didn't know. And when life situations came up, we thought we knew how we were going to handle them, but we didn't know until they actually showed up. Mm -hmm. You really want to take time to have a, as many conversations with that person that you're going to marry prior to marrying them, but understand that it's, it's going to be a work in progress. What we did with our finances 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago is not what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. But if you are in your, in your second marriage, the st st statistic is 50% for your first marriage. 
60% divorce rate for your second marriage and 70 for your third. So I would look at those statistics depending on where you are and if your spouse, because some, for some people, if they say that they're, they're walking the other direction. You know, they're not, they're not going down the aisle with you if you even bring up that, that notion. So again, I, there's no right or wrong answer. If I were second or third, I'd be thinking about it. I'd be thinking about it just from the statistics alone. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I, I'm glad that uh, uh, the, the type, well, the faith that my husband and I uh, believed in when we were married almost a hundred years ago, they required that we had a discussion on uh, that they had three top things that were the cause of divorce, finance being the first. Mm -hmm. So they made us come up with a financial plan before we were married. You had to discuss if you were going to do family planning, if you were going to have kids and how many. And the third thing is in-laws. <laughs> That you, so you had to have those, and, and it's unbelievable. A lot of people don't discuss no, things don't. Right. before they get married. Right. Yeah. And, and then I've known a case like you just, my mother had a friend who was with the man for 35 years. Mm. He died. She gets put out of the house because he never took the house out of his first wife's name. Mm. Mm. She had 35 years gone. The mm. ex-wife got the house and and they don't turn the house down do they oh no nothing was turned down and that's when i was saying in our first section if you don't do your paperwork in life you gotta have that paperwork squared away or you're just going to be messed up so that leads to this question is it essential to hire a lawyer to prepare for your demise yeah, you know, I, I think, again, that is similar to um, the question about divorce. Is it essential? I think that it, it should be essential. Do most people do it? No. Uh, most people don't have that conversation because we don't want to think about what that's going to be like. But the unfortunate thing is, and I think we covered some of this in our last session, is if you do not have a plan in place, a will or some type of trust document governing how your assets will be dispersed or disseminated, you are going to cause your loved ones to delay getting the assets that you've worked hard for. And they're going to have to pay more because the state is going to get involved in your affairs. In addition to that, if you are someone with children and you do not have a plan in place, especially if you don't have loved ones, the, those children are going to be shuffled to the state to determine where those children get placed. So from a financial standpoint, you want to think about how that's going to impact. But if you have minor children and you don't have a document in place, the state is the first person that has the ability to take those children and then decide where they get dispersed. Um, so having a plan in place, I think, is extremely important, no matter what stage of life that you're in. Um, you need a plan. We, have uh, we, we were told by our um, uh, lawyer who took care of our trust fund and will and all of that, that at our age to revisit it uh, once a year. Now, a year comes by, go just... So it's been a couple of years now already. Uh, you think that's important to look at it about once a year, once you reach yes. a certain age? 
Yes, I think every few years, it's definitely something you need to revisit or soon or more if there are life circumstances. So if there's someone that passes away, if things change, if you know, you have to revisit that based on how life, how you are processing through life and the, the circumstances that come to you with the, the individuals that are either going to receive your assets or help administer them, administer them for you if they're in trust and, and you're not going to be administering those dollars. So as life happens, we need to be making adjustments if they need to be, but a year or two years is typically feasible. Okay, Clarence? We have two minutes. Uh, an hour has flown by. Latoya, tell us about the services you provide and how people can get in touch with you. Yes. Um, and we'll let you share anything else in addition to that as we wrap up. Yeah, thank you. So I am located in um, Indianapolis, Indiana. My primary office is at Monument Circle, but I'm happy to travel anywhere to, to meet with clients. Um, you can reach me at Latoya, L-A-T-O-Y-A dot Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S at oldnational.com. Or you can give me a call at 317-612-612. 0274. Um, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have in regards to planning. Now, in my specific practice, I work with individuals um, that have investable assets of um, $2 million or more, and I work specifically with business owners helping them create retirement plans. However, if you don't meet my, my, my specific levels of investments, still give me a call because I'll be able to point you in the right direction. Old National has a wealth of tools and resources to help you not only a plan for where you are today, but to help you get to where you want to be tomorrow. And I'd be happy to direct you if you reach out to me. All right. And on that okay. note, our thanks to Old National Bank Wealth Management Advisor Latoya Williams for joining us again to advise us on financial literacy, wealth growth and management, and the basics of short and long-term financial planning. To reach her once again, Latoya, L-A-T-O-Y-A dot Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, at oldnational.com. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So you, if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, and tonight's assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young, and program engineer is Chantal LaFontant. Original theme music was created by Jamel Lefian with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.